Welcome back to Season 3 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. In this series of podcasts, we are highlighting the best presentations from the January 2020 San Francisco Digital Orthopedics Conference, otherwise known as DOCSF, presented in partnership with UCSF's Department of Orthopedic Surgery, and the November 2019 DOCSF Berlin Conference, presented in partnership with Frontiers Health. In this episode 19 of season three, we invited Nilesh Jain, CEO of the highly successful India-based telehealth platform, to DocSF Berlin to present a case study of a successful implementation and what they learned from their experience. The panel for the Q&A was moderated by Tobias Winkler, a professor of orthopedics from the Charité Hospital in Berlin. Let's join them on the stage at DocSF Berlin. Just to give you some statistics, we're a young startup. We're doing about 180,000 transactions a day, and these are clinical transactions. These are interactions between the patient and the doctor. So we may be a young company, but we're still actually processing a large number of transactions. We've got a very large um, install base in the last six months across six different countries. We're operational in developed nations, developing nations, and we have some great use cases Again, this is going to be one of the use cases that we talk about. So we're actually creating a digital platform for different partners in the healthcare ecosystem to come together. And one of the partner is a hospital, an insurance company, a provider, payer, patient, and their associates, which means the family members can come together. A very modular solution. I will not actually go through the pitch of what we do, it's very explained that the solution that we built is modular, which means we can plug and play. Very futuristic, which means we have integrated multiple devices. And uh, I will actually get a chance to demo of what we've done on MPSHA. This is one of our devices. We own the IP to this. Uh, this does six different vitals. In the hands of the patient, this can do wonders because this captures real-time vital data, pushes it back to the EMR or the PMS, where the doctor actually looks at this data or we have a machine learning algorithm that actually looks at this data. Similar to this, we've got 26 other devices which actually reduce the point of care. We've got a urine analyzer, we've got a vitamin stick, we've got a 12 bleed ECG, and the example here is we can integrate multiple devices that are coming out through innovation, and we're seeing a lot of devices coming out. The challenge there is how do we integrate that with a provider, with a hospital or a doctor, and we'll talk about the use case today. When we actually went to Kenya, this is one of the largest hospitals. Currently, they have 350 beds. They're going to be extending to 700 plus beds, two different sites. One of the biggest challenges for them was ability to provide long-term care for chronic care patients, which means they were actually losing money. The patient would come to the hospital for a single episode and then go back and independently try to manage this. One of our propositions was how do we actually convert an episode value to a lifetime value for that patient, which means looking at patient outcomes from a longer-term perspective, which means better retention, better outcome for the patient because of consistency. Average length of stay. This, needless to say, is one of the biggest challenges across all the hospitals, be it the Western world or be it the you know, developing nations that are coming up. In the developing nations, you tend to keep the patient in the hospital much longer than you need to because access to vitals, post-operative care, is not that easy, and that impacts readmission rates. 
So we actually help them look at this uh, from a much finer details. Also help them set up remote care process and remote care management, which means we can actually give the devices on lease to the patient post-operative and still manage the remote vitals coming back into the EMR and HRS system. And then finally, looking at cancellations of surgeries. They had a huge issue because surgeries were getting rescheduled and canceled because of compliance reasons, because of non-readiness of the surgeon or non-readiness of the hospital. By putting in our OT system, which is, we claim it to be the second best now in the world, post-GE, because we enable the entire safety process through the surgery process, patient protocols, permissions, the entire knowledge base of what is gonna happen, how it's gonna happen, is actually managed and monitored through the technology uh, that is deployed across the hospital and the patient. So our solution was in three different areas. We've actually replaced their entire HIS. Now, we don't need to do that. Because the hospital was in a transition, they had a very old system, almost 20, 22 years old system, and they were looking at a new technology coming in. So we had the opportunity to actually replace their entire HIS, EMR, OT, PACS, the whole solution. We also implemented a practice management system so the doctors could have access back into their HIS, into the independent clinics that they run remotely in Kenya. CareBridge, one of the most critical part, uh, which actually helped them look at, manage, and monitor the patient vitals coming into the EMR directly from the patient home for post-operative care. The CareBridge is actually a solution that bridges into the EMR of the HIS for the doctors to look at all the patients across his entire network of hospitals. So it's not just limited to one hospital. The doctor had access to all the patients that were either in the hospital, in the IPD, or actually at home with remote care devices. And the last piece is really automating the entire OT management process. There aren't solutions that actually encompass the entire, from a patient confirmation perspective, from a patient access perspective, into the OT process of the hospital and managing the actual surgery process having all the protocols, having all the documentation around that surgery. So the first solution that actually built a very comprehensive OT solution that integrates back into the patient app, back into the EMR and the HIS systems. So three areas that we want to talk about today. From a long-term chronic care, we actually gave our device to the patients. The patient actually monitors three different vitals, which is blood pressure, blood glucose, and SpO2 heart rate. This vital data is actually pushed back onto the HIS platform for the hospital with the connection to the practice management system that the doctor has. So the two advantages, one, the doctor now looks at the long-term trend of what's happening based on the medication prescription that has been given, and also looks at adherence of the medication of the patient, whether they've been taking it or not, because your vitals are gonna tell you the story. Also, the system is looking at long-term trend, which means if I prescribe today, how do I know the efficacy of the drugs? Because all trial and error, depending on the weight, the patient, the conditions, the behavior of the patient, right? So really, in today's world, the decision-making process takes between three to six months for them to change the medication, look at the efficacy of the drug, whether something was happening or not from a patient perspective. With this continuous monitoring and having an AI engine behind it, we can actually provide a lot more interventional information for the doctor to actually call back the patient. And I'll give you a case and example. The patient actually had fewer visits into the hospital to go to the doctor, they got all the tests done, they got all the basic data accumulated, and then actually went to the doctor, which means earlier what used to take three visits was done in a single visit. That saves a lot of cost, time, and 
the painful process that the patient and the doctor has to go through for each consultation that they had to go through. Also, the hospital, from a monetary perspective, actually has now come back with long-term care plans, which means they're asking patients to subscribe a paid subscription because it's a paid you know, healthcare service there for an annual plan of managing long-term diabetic care. And they're looking at rolling this out across other care mechanisms like cardiac care and other chronic conditions. CareBridge is one of a very unique solution that MP Shah looked at because one of the challenges was because they had multiple sites, the doctors needed the visibility into the IPD records of the HIS and didn't have any integration across the two sites. CareBridge actually allows the doctors to have a visibility into real-time data, right from the IPD, from the OT, from ICU, onto their cell phones or iPad. And also complete visibility across all the sites, which means they can not only monitor, but also actually give instructions to the nurses while they're on their way or they're remotely away from the hospital. This actually helped them improve the level of care that the doctor could provide to the patients who are in the hospital. The last OT solution actually encompasses the entire process, right from start to end of how the entire surgery is managed. This actually helped them do two things. One, cover the safety aspect of every surgery that the hospital went through. And two, the readmission rates actually came down because of the post-operative care process that they implemented. In terms of the ROI for chronic care, we did two major things. One was really improve the patient engagement and the patient outcomes. Once the patient came in, the level of care that the hospital could provide because of the, the app, because of the device, and because of the constant monitoring actually comforted the patient saying, I don't need to go to any other doctor, any other hospital. I'm much more comfortable here because it's more proactive now. Right? The second part was looking at the adherence of medication it actually went up in the patients that we piloted with because the vitals were measured on a daily basis. If anything went wrong, alerts, SMSs, calls from the care provider team actually went into the patient and to their care team, which could be their immediate family members to say, this is not happening, pulse rate is going up, blood glucose is not measuring up to the expectation. Are we doing the stuff that we need to do? Is the patient taking the medication? Is the walks, the physical behavior changing or not? The doctor monitors that over the long term. In terms of ALOS, this was a huge improvement because it actually added revenue to the hospital. It increased capacity. One of the biggest challenges for these hospitals is to actually increase capacity without investing into the infrastructure. So by reduction, by almost a day, it actually added more capacity to the hospital. It also increased the patient outcomes because the patient felt that post-operative care was still managed by the hospital and the doctor, even though the patient was at their home. Thank you for this very interesting talk. It's a very, um, actually, profound platform that encompasses almost everything that we have in pre-operative and post-operative care. So maybe might I start, I myself am a doctor and I'm always weary about the communication of the platforms with the doctors because now we schedule patients, they come to us in a limited time frame, we talk to them and then they go home again. And with these platforms, we always have the possibility to be contacted whenever. So how do you prevent the doctors from overload actually? Yes, this is a great question. And we, this was a part of the problem at MP Shah when we actually did the early pilot. One of the things that we didn't implement early on was the care team process. So actually patients can't directly get in touch with the doctor. There's a care team assigned to that patient. There is a, a group of people. So it's not just the doctor, but the nurses and the admin person from the hospital. Also, the responsiveness is by schedule or by appointment only. So the patient cannot just call the doctor 
right? They can send messages into the system. They cannot call the doctor. That's one. Second, one of the most important thing is we are not changing the emergency care process. So we're very clear with this. Any emergency, the patient still has to go to an ER and get attended to. So we're very clear with that because this can get misrepresented. The patient can try to contact the doctor in, in case of an emergency, but the doctor is not going to be able to be 24-7. So the system is not 24-7. It's mainly to attend issues that are long-term chronic care conditions, long-term care requirements. Now, when we talk about post-operative care, where the vitals are coming in, that's where you've got a nurse, nursing station where the same vitals, like the patient would be admitted in a hospital in an ICU, you have a nursing station and you've got a command control center where you can actually see all the vitals coming, coming in even from remote patients. So technology lets you separate the two from what post-operative care is where the attention is required 24-7 versus more of a information push into the doctor. Following that, since you're also an orthopedic surgeon, I would ask you if you have questions to Okay, I basically have one question regarding data. You were saying you're building a modular system with multiple data sources coming from the patient, coming from the hospitals themselves and pushing them back to the EMR. Where is the data actually and who does it belong to? <laughs> This is a million dollar question. So the reason I'm laughing is I'm a part of the World Economic Forum uh, team that is called as Digital Platforms for Healthcare. And this is the exact question we're trying to address is who owns the data, how the data regression needs to happen, how the rights needs to be revoked and accessed. When we look at healthcare data, I don't think the answer is the patient or the hospital or the insurer owns every part of the data. And I'll give you a perspective. Let's assume this is a pool of data. This pool of data is created by different entities in the healthcare ecosystem. An insurance company has a right to data that they have access to and what they own. The patient has co-rights to that data. Same thing with a hospital. A hospital has internal data and then data that's relevant to the patient, like discharge summary. It's co-owned by the hospital as well as the patient. Now, there are certain elements that the data is only owned by the patients and not by the hospital or the insurance company. So when we look at our system and the way we've created the model approach is we've actually dissected the data as to how, who owns it, and also the regression rights for each of the entity players that become a part of this ecosystem. But in general, I mean, each of these data points belongs to the patient. He owns all data relevant to him or her. Exactly. So, I mean, that's the central point. So why not make the data model patient-centric? Absolutely right, yes. I'll give you a case and example, but let's say during the OT process, I issued 20 different instruments. Does patient own that data? In the OR, the in instruments that were used? Yes. Basically, yes. He has a right to know what kind of implants. He has a right to know, but exactly. he does not own the data. He does not control the access to that data at any given point in time. But he has <laughs> the right to access that data. Yes, exactly. So I think this is what, where the tough questions when we talk about digital platforms and the data ownership rights, right? These are the questions that we're trying to answer. From a technology perspective, what we've done is we've enabled the infrastructure to let you define how these data rights will be accessed, who has access, right? Which means if the patient has access to it and they give permission, then the data is accessible. And I'll give you an example. Let's say a patient moves from Dr. A to Dr. B. How do I give access to Dr. B for an X amount of time? Our platforms actually allow you to do that, where the doctor has access to maybe two hours, three hours, four hours, and the patient can actually revoke that access back from the data, data access that the doctor has. Same thing for hospitals. 
this is a huge advantage when we talk about second opinion. And we're actually looking into that space is how do we create second opinions by sharing this data? Whenever a patient goes through a complex surgery, we, I've personally been through this story in my life about neurosurgery, and I wanted to have opinions from different doctors across the globe. This was four years ago. Literally, I had to actually ship DVDs to these doctors to get opinions, right? With a platform like this, I can actually give them access and revoke access at will based on my, you know, my data that I want to give them access to. So that's kind of the, the differentiation that we built. The reason why we built the way we built is because the current technology allows me to do. See, what has happened in the last five to seven years, the tech scene has changed. We haven't adopted that in healthcare. And this is where we see a biggest advantage of what we build versus other companies that have been in this space for the last 15, 20 years. We've actually taken the latest and the greatest that technology allows you to do in healthcare and adapt that for what we would need in the next 5, 10, 15 years. And I'll give you an example. Apple Watch. How many EMRs can actually integrate that information to make decisions? And that's just one case and example. We're working in, in rural Bangladesh where we've brought the cost down of urine analysis to less than 50 cents per analysis. And the diagnostic is done right there and then within five minutes. Earlier, the patient actually had to go to a district hospital, which was literally about 10 to 15 miles away, spend the money on transportation, loss of wages, and then get the results. Now, this is what the latest technology can actually do, bring the cost down and provide the care that's required at the point of care. Absolutely, but that's always giving the patient all the data. I mean, I do many second and third opinions too. My main time pain is that I need to collect x-rays, I need to collect OR reports, have my secretary working for hours just to get me one patient together, and I want to have those things before I see the patient. Yes. I mean, if the patient can walk in and can just give me access directly to all these records at the time he's there, that's perfectly fine for me, and that's the way I would like to have it. Yes. So fortunately, one of our co-founders is Dr. Abed Chopra. He's, based, he's a surgeon based out of the UK, practicing surgeon for the last 35 years. And a lot of the, the challenges and the feedback that we got when we built our system was exactly to your point is, how do we actually create data mobility? By keeping in mind the rights of patient, because that's kind of the core focus, at the same time, improve patient outcomes. And that's a very loosely word, you know? A lot of people have been talking about patient outcomes. We've actually really seen it. We've seen it across rural India. We've seen it across rural Bangladesh. We're actually working with two Ministry of Health to talk about creating a data information exchange for the governments to see how this can be deployed across all their hospitals, all their primary clinics, and then bringing it back to the patient. Maybe, Roberto, you have an overview of so many platforms and companies, and I bet you have 1,000 questions. Maybe you can pose one to Nilesh that is at the core of your interest there. Yeah, first off, I want to emphasize how important is the ownership of the data on a patient level. I want to build like five seconds on that. The patients are the real system integrators within the healthcare systems. Are the patients that bring the data from Dr. A to Dr. B are those that when in a chronic condition, uh, besides the three, four, five accesses to the system across the year, have the balance of the time on their own and they need to figure out what to do. In all these circumstances, technology can be incredibly helpful to fill the gaps and even offload, I think, the systems from improper usage or improper access that you can do by optimizing those flows. So clearly, this can only be done through technology. So platforms like this one are important because without that, there's, no, there's nothing to talk about because there's no 
process that you can basically deploy if you don't have such an infrastructure. But, that, but it's so important, I think, that people will, all of us, will have ownership of the data because we will be patients sooner or later anyway. You know, that's how <laughs> we are genetically programmed to become patients. So I would like to access once I have the control of the data that I can have. So with this said, so just to, you know, kind of stress how this is important. Uh, question that I may have is, and, you know, we are here to kind of poke the holes, right? Yeah. So the platform is impressively extensive. It touches so many different areas that I was like, you know, I w when I was looking at the presentation, when it was about to the finish, there was more, right? So question is, is there like a, a core problem you're trying to solve that you think you're solving brilliantly based on the, you know, the experience that you've accumulated? Are there areas where you think you can kind of partner up with other kind of systems to kind of deploy the kind of output that you want to develop? The reason why I'm asking is I think the healthcare is so complex. I've been working on, we were calling differently, but this still same digital health over 20 years now. I'm starting to think what's the minimum meaningful problem that I can solve with kind of one piece of tech to maybe then collaborate with other pieces of tech in a smooth way, of course, to then del deliver, you know, the output versus it conceptually a la large scale mega infrastructures that probably will take time to reach scale. So that would be my, my question to you. Point well, well taken. I, I think in healthcare, we can't really boil the ocean. And when we started the company, we actually started with a very small HIS solution, and we quickly realized we're going to fail because that does not solve the problem of data mobility and actually looking at patient-centric care. So if you look at what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring in different players in the ecosystem. We've invested in the technology for the last three years, and the reason why we didn't go out to the market to actually go deploy because we didn't want to be too early uh, and put in a half-baked solution. The reason why we started deploying about six months ago is primarily because of this fact that let's actually build the right infrastructure. And then when you go to a hospital or go to a doctor or go to a provider, you can plug and play. With the core to our solution being, how do we actually mobilize the data that's gonna be patient-centric, where patient actually can make these decisions. Now, if I ask you a question, if I ask you for a bank balance, you'll be able to go to your phone and open and give me, you can probably give me your last bank statement, but if I ask you last medical checkup or the last blood test, will you be able to give me that? The cost of care in both developing and developed nations is because of that is I'm doing a lot of repetitive stuff. If I can avoid the repetitive stuff and I can give this information to the doctor who's actually getting into the intervention process, intervention process it actually saves a lot of cost, a lot of time. And the way we start out to solve this is by taking smaller pieces of the ecosystem. So we started with an HIS then an EMR, PHR, a mobile application, devices. So also we're not building our own solutions. We're, we've actually integrated some of these solutions, right? We're actually integrating an AI ML solution on top of our platform. We're actually beginning to work with some of the pharma companies to say, how do we actually help you improve the clinical trial process if the doctor and the patient agrees to this process? So we're bringing a lot of transparency into the system through our provider network, through the insurer network, by making sure that they're wanting to be a part of it. But going back to the core, one of the biggest problems that we've seen, and this is the reason why we are able to do close to 175, 180,000 transactions a day, is because of our adoption. 
you know, doctors hate to use technology. I, I don't want to make it, you know, more obvious. But there are certain technologies that we've partnered with that actually makes that process a lot easier. If you look at the templates and the process that we've defined on our platform that you get to define, it's very personalized from both sides, from the doctor side as well as the patient side. One of the reasons why we saw MPSHA being very successful with the chronic care management is because the doctors could actually create their own templates, create their own workflow, and the process to manage diabetic care as a separate process versus cardiac care process as a separate process, right? So that helps the doctors actually define how they mimic their practice onto a technology process. Yeah, thank you very much. Actually, I want to keep this subject on the involvement of the doctors. Ash, you, Terios, you also have a digital platform. You developed it over the last years. You're about to implement it, have your pilots. How did you actually work on the involvement of the doctors? And also, of course, you invited them to ask Nilesh, which were his problems and if they were they were the same that you encountered so first of all from our side our solution you know basically targeting doctors is really identifying the needs first of all making sure that what you there exist a need to which you are providing a solution but as i said the stakeholders in this business is far beyond doctors so it's very i mean so far throughout europe Convincing doctors has not been a challenge, that there is a requirement. The challenge comes afterwards, involving stakeholders and so on into this business. And bet, I don't know how your experience goes in India as well as in Kenya, where things might be different. And that brings me to a question to you from the business perspective. First of all, who is paying for this? Is it the <laughs> patient? Is it the hospital? And I guess the inventory is given to the patient. So how is the inventory managed? after that is it the hospital which is managing the inventory because that's a hell complicated it process is. or is it you who are managing that inventory is coming back because there is cogs of course involved in manufacturing this device great question you know i've never gotten out of a discussion where the cost doesn't come into discussion and i'll tell you i'll give you a great example just think of what aws and salesforce have done in their respective industries we've actually done this in healthcare if i told you our practice management solution for an indian doctor costs less than $500 a year. The only reason I can do that is because of the technology that we've used. If I tell you a small-scale hospital in Bangladesh is actually spending less than $5,000 a year for the entire technology platform, we've actually gone and taken technology and disrupted the healthcare space in how the big players have actually modeled their business model in the past. You know, the topmost company out of the U.S., does close to $8 billion in just software sales. We've actually disrupted that market, and we're starting it from the developing nations we're actually launching in the UK. But yes, cost has been a big issue. I think we are actually disrupting that issue, that, that factor where this is not an issue because it's a pay-per-use model. You don't have any upfront cost. There's no capital cost involved. There's only OPEX involved. And this is really transformation because when we go talk to the CFO and the CEO of the hospital management, they actually ask us to give it in writing again and again, right? So that's very disruptive. The second part is when we talk about who pays for it, I think at the end of the day, the patient is paying for it. And I'll give you another example of how behaviors are changing in the space. Uber Eats or Swiggy, you know, when they started this, the consumers actually didn't pay anything. And if you look at now, once the, the consumer started seeing the benefit, they're actually paying for those services. Why would healthcare be different? 
the consumer here would be a patient or would be an insurance company. And we've seen this happen in the developing nations. We've seen doctors actually come out with models for long-term chronic care and actually charge them between $300 to $500 a year. But the patient is paying the doctor because you know, it saves them multiple visits to the doctor. So there's a clear ROI that even after I spend $300, I'm still saving maybe another $200, $300 because it actually helped me avoid two, three visits to the doctor. So at the end of the day, the patient still pays for it. It depends on how you actually see the ROI and the perceived value for the patient. We've seen hospitals also pay for it, uh, especially the insurance companies uh, backed by this. But again, this is a, a, an evolution of question of who pays for it. The biggest advantage that we have is using technology, we can actually disrupt the cost to a level where it doesn't become a huge impact. I mean, just to add to that, because when you say patient is going to pay for it, there might be a continental bias because that might be possible in Asia, that might be possible in US, but uh, there was a big study conducted in Europe asking patients, would you like to pay for a digital service? And believe it or not, most of the patients say why they should pay for it, because they are paying highly into the health insurance. So even if they like it, it's going to improve their life and so on. There's always a question in the back of the mind of the patient, why should I pay for it? My health insurance should pay for it because I'm paying already so much into it. Absolutely right. I think different markets will need a different approach in terms of how we, we solve the payment problem, right? Absolutely right. Now, I just want to make a comment on the, I would say, ability or consensus to pay out of pocket. I think in Europe, we have several healthcare systems where are essentially social. And so there is a clear expectations that against a taxation, which is pretty substantial, you will get proper healthcare, including the digital side. While this is totally true, and I think it's even appropriate till the level of taxation is such high. On the other hand, it's also true that all serious or disruptive or radical, I like radical more than disruptive innovation, is comes from consumers first. So it's people that at some point are unhappy with the, the way something gets managed, which basically kind of go around and, and, and do what you know, they need. If you look at diabetes, which likely is one of the most developed digital health environments, all the most brilliant startups that have been already transformed diabetes forever, some have been even acquired by pharmaceutical companies or insurance companies, so are already kind of at scale, were designed by diabetic people, which basically were unsatisfied with the system answer to the management of the disease. So they kind of hacked the system in a way, creating their own startups. And in that community, there are a lot of people that were keen to pay to get a certain level of service. What happened there is that certain smart systems, whether private or public, started to say, wait a minute, if I'm pushing much, a lot of money into that solution, which is people are not using, not liking, and people are not adherent to, what if I start to reimburse what people are buying out of pocket as a metric for success? So something that was kind of consumer first, people were paying out of pocket as a hack to the system, got pictured by the system and said, okay, we will pay for that. Mm -hmm. This happened already in a few selected cases. So, so I think there's a healthy way to consumer-driven business models as long as the policymakers, the regulators do monitor what's working versus what's not working. There are a number of clinical CRM systems in the world, which is the one that is most used is WhatsApp, which is not secure enough. I mean, uh, uh, it doesn't you know, follow certain kind of rules, but 
even people, I'm talking about physicians and patients that do have a, a certified system by their care organization, they still use WhatsApp. Why? Because it's superiorly designed, it's superiorly conceived, it's, you know. Um, so I think that's something we should take into consideration when we design things, even when we think how to reimburse uh, stuff. Just my little opinion. There is a circle that starts with WhatsApp and ends with WhatsApp. Is there a question in the audience? I see a question here. Hi, I'm Stefania again. I've been in Bangladesh for two months, two years ago, to support the development of uh, Telenor Health, uh, mobile health platform. I think it's really important for us to understand that it's a completely different world. And I mean, honestly, you almost can do mo more there because the infrastructure is very basic. And so you, you, be, you, you have to build things from scratch. So this is why this omnicomprehensive solution makes so much sense. And maybe for me as a European and Italian, it seems uh, how you can do this or uh, it's impossible because we have primary, secondary and, and so on. Yeah, I just want to, to raise this point because I, I understand that it's, it's difficult if you don't go there to understand. On the other side, I've noticed in my experience uh, similarities uh, in terms of, for example, resilience in managing uh, chronic conditions, like how men are resilient in not talking about their health. And so I, I'm curious about what we, you learned about people and what we can learn uh, and we can try to apply also in Europe, because I've seen, apart from technology, I think a lot is about uh, behavior change. And the second point is about business model because uh, that's, that is completely different, I think, from, from Europe and countries like Bangladesh. So my question is more on, uh, I'm curious about this uh, chronic condition, this telemedicine platform, what you learn about people behavior and differences, for example, between rural areas and, I don't know, DACA. If you did this, I don't know where, where you did it, uh, but just I'm curious about that. Thanks. So, great question. I you know, want to validate the point that the work that we've seen doing in India, Bangladesh, Southeast Asia is very different from what we're doing in the U.S. and also soon to do in the U.K. We're actually going to be launching our solution with close to 25,000 consultants in the U.K. through a payment processor gateway. Our learnings are very different. In, in the project that we're doing in Dhaka 1 and Nawabganj districts in Bangladesh is very different, focused on rural care, last mile care but using the same platform. And this is where I think we've taken a very different approach. We're solving a technology problem for the providers. We're not in the business of actually doing healthcare provision, which means as a company, I'm not getting into the care provision business. I'm enabling the doctors, hospitals, insurance companies to actually leverage technology to deploy what they need to deploy. And this is where we're fundamentally different from what other companies or other startups are doing in this ecosystem. They're actually solving the end point of solution in, in terms of healthcare. We're not getting there today. Our vision is in the next five to seven years, once we have enough information, we want to collaborate with universities, with companies that are much more advanced in AI, ML, algorithms, and actually start working with them. Our vision is to be an app store. And I'll give you an example. We're working with, in the area of COPD, where we're looking at CT scans and doing a 16, 17 level deep analysis in terms of what the prognosis can be. Just imagine if the doctor from his PMS had the option to say, click off a button, push the CT, give me the results within minutes, and actually give a better consultation to the patient. We're in the technology to actually enable this. 
We'll learn different models. I'm pretty sure in the UK, we're going to learn a very different model of how we do chronic care management. Um, in the US, it'll be very different. The behavioral changes that will dr be driven off the solutions will be very different across different continents. What we are amazed is we're still able to support the same technology and the same platform across all the geographies, which means fundamentally, the communication language may change, but the process and protocols are still remaining almost similar. And we're able to identify that upfront. Right. So hopefully that answers your, your question. That's interesting. We have the same problem in the United States. I have a conference in San Francisco. The people from Texas think they're you different. You speak louder, I think. You can't hear you. Yeah, say you go, you go to San Francisco and I have a conference and the people from Texas think they're so different. You know, somebody from Italy says, oh, I'm so different from Bangladesh. Actually, we're not. The way we exchange data is the same. The questions we answer is the same. The infrastructure is largely similar. Believe it or not, the infrastructure is not that different. But there is, the way people live may be different, but no, 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 no. You, you, the technologies can adapt. You see, that's the thing about it. The way you share information is, but, my, but I wasn't trying to pick on you. I was just saying that there is definitely this idea that somehow everyone's different. That's why my hospital never work. And if you're an entrepreneur, you always hear that. And you're going to come back to that question. And it's a very important one because you hear that, I'm sure, all the time. And then when you actually go deploy, you're deploying the same solution with a different color scheme. Maybe you ask a different question. But the hardware is the same. The software is the same. And it's really an important measure of success that we've come to. The other thing that's interesting to me in terms of these technology, the, the fire standards. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but the difference between deploying a API to a digital health platform six months ago that didn't have a fire standard and today is between 10x and 20x difference in cost. So every six or seven months, you're seeing a massive drop in those barriers that everybody thinks are big barriers. And technologies like yours which are modular, which are able to be deployed in, in part or wholesale, like you showed us in Kenya, that's a very unusual case study, I think have um, a, a leg up in that game of uh, moving forward. Okay, so we make a last very quick round. And I would now ask everybody to name the biggest obstacle that you encountered and you survived more or less in the path of establishing your own digital solutions and the biggest obstacle that you see in the future that is still to be coped with? I think behavioral change is one of the biggest obstacles. And one of the things that we've been grappling we to, with... We need to like really precisely... And I'll, explain, I'll explain you what behavioral change is because there are behavioral change is on the two sides. One, you know, we were talking about the nurse, nurses and the adoption of nurses in terms of technology. We've seen a huge issue around that and how do we actually create technology that actually works with them with their current processes. And same thing on the patient side is, is expected behavioral change on information that you get and what you do about it, right? Okay, thank you. Roberto. I'll comment probably what I observe the most. I think it's the speed different. The speed of who is working on innovation from the, I would say, generation side, say startups in general, it's very fast and has to be fast because the runway is limited. There's no innovation in healthcare if you do not connect innovators with institutions and that the speed of the institution is much slower. Mm -hmm. So the biggest problem that I see is this disalignment between the pace. If we want to really do what banking has been doing, what travel has been doing, you know, what transportation in general has been doing, we need to 
help those innovators to be more engaged with the institutional side. And I believe that the alignment of speed and expectation is probably the most important one. With the institutions, that needs to have uh, processes that do acknowledge that innovation has a different speed by design and by necessity, not for any other reason. So this would be my take. Thank you. Okay, for me, the biggest problem is actually the communication between the user and the developer. So you have innovation out there, you have a fantastic solution that looks great on paper, and you launch it into the clinic, and the user says, nice, but I can't use it, that's not my way of working. <laughs> I've seen that over and over over the last 20 years, that developers will come up with an idea, it would be implemented on the technological side, and the end user could not use it because it wasn't practical to his everyday practice. And the understanding for the processes on the front end is essential for the success of the back end to yeah. actually function. Thank you. Very well put, yeah. Ash? From my side, basically, so the biggest problem or challenge at this moment is reaching the threshold in digital health because the threshold or the time it takes to show return on investment, after all, it's a business, is becoming too difficult. And venture capitalists, industrial management, and so on, they wanted to see that before they pour in more money into that. So clearly that's, oh, and apparently this, this is not easy. It's not a Facebook. It's, you're never going to have unicorns appearing in one month of time or one year of time. That, that's completely clear so Thank far from what I've seen. I didn't want to end with costs. But of course, the question to with the biggest problem involved them. So thank you very much to the panelists. It was a very good discussion. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of season three of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast and that you heard something that will trigger your curiosity and advance your digital journey. Many of the examples we bring you are outside of orthopedics, but the technologies and solutions we present are all eminently translatable to musculoskeletal care. Please consider giving us a review on your podcast platform so other people can find us. More importantly, tell a friend about our amazing community. We look forward to sharing the next episode with you. I am your host, Stefano Bini, founder and chair of both the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco and this, the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. <laughs>